9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rockoff. I am your host. I am here in New York City, and we are joined by a group of our favorites, including in Washington, D.C., or Alexandria more properly, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And also in the Washington, D.C. area, we have uh, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hello, David. And David Sanger, are you in the Washington, D.C. area? Or have I, you? I am just, just blocks from Ed. We, if it wasn't for social distancing, Ed and I would be doing this together. That's a beautiful, beautiful thought, and I look forward to that when social distancing ends. <laughs> and not too far from there, I think, is Joe Cerincioni of the Plowshares Fund. Are you in Washington too, Joe? I am right uh, outside in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Hello, Ed. And um, hello, David, and hello, Rose, and hello, David. Thank you. Um, so, look, before we get into there's a long list of things to, to go over because a lot's been happening. Um, uh, today, uh, sadly, we passed the milestone of 100,000 Americans dead of this uh, virus. Um, but I want to draw attention to a couple of other things. Um, first, having to do a bit with the election and then with foreign policy, um, because I want to start with the fact that the New York Times went to Rosa this weekend and essentially wrote something that said, everybody thought Rosa was crazy, but maybe she's not. Is that what the New York <laughs> Times, the paper of record reported? Pretty much what it said, yes. It said, Rosa Brooks, well-known prophet of doom, uh, runs around after people demanding that they listen to her and they all think she's nuts. <laughs> My mom was really proud. See, I read it differently, David. I read it that Rosa may be nuts, but she may also be right. <laughs> well, I thought been, there were hedge words in there, you know? We've been, we've been counting on that for a long, long time. Um, it's a perfect combination, kind of like the Oracle yeah. of, of, Del, of Delphi. Um, or maybe uh, Cassandra, which is more problematic. Yeah, that's that. Well, that's that's true. But what was your point, Rosa? What, what was the point you were well, making? Well, my, my point is one that we have all of us, I think, made on this podcast many times um, since since I, I, I've succeeded in infecting the rest of you with my apocalyptic worldview. Um, and, and the point is that I don't think we can afford to assume that the election or the transition uh, in November and between November and January will proceed in a normal way with this president, President Trump uh, in office. I think we need to, in fact, assume that President Trump is quite likely, not, 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 not definitely, but is quite likely to do everything possible to disrupt the electoral process and or the transition process. And we need to be thinking about that now and preparing for that now and trying to prevent or mitigate that now. Well, that seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to say, Ed. She's not crazy. No, that's not crazy at all. Um, I think there are all kinds of 
scenarios, which I know you've been working on, and people like uh, Ian Bassin of Protect Democracy have been working on, and lawyers of both, of all political stripes, constitutional and other kinds of lawyer, and non-lawyers across Washington have been working on these scenarios. Um, Trump's giving it away, really, by um, saying um, what he's saying about um, mail-in ballots being um, fraud by definition, and that people just stuff them and they cheat, and therefore um, we can't have mail-in ballots. Um, this is uh, a very, very clear signal, if any were needed, that he wants to suppress the vote, reduce the vote, minimize the democratic action in November, because he fears, I think correctly, that he will lose and perhaps lose big. So the game between now and November is by means um, legal and possibly not legal um, uh, to try to tilt the playing field so that he can somehow stay onto power. And that, of course, applies in the case of a narrow result on November the 3rd, where Bill Barr has scope for interpretation and the courts have opportunity to intervene. So I think, um, I think Rosa's lunacy has, 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 struck, has struck a rare moment of sanity on this question. Thank you, Ed. I'm so touched. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I'm so uh, glad. I'm so glad I was here for that. Do you want to say something, David? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say this was. Oh, first of all, I agree completely. It was a rare moment of sanity for both. <laughs> um, uh, but um, I actually think that the mail-in ballot issue um, is complex for reasons that you would never get to understand from Trump's tweets. So I disagree with him that uh, this necessarily biases the vote against um, Republicans. We just saw an all-mail-in ballot in a congressional race in California where the Republican somewhat improbably won from a Democratic seat. Um, or it was, it was a, a, a case of a resigned uh, Democrat. But there is... A different, and, and I think in general, mail-in ballots are good because it gives us a paper backup. And, you know, you've heard me on this broadcast say many times, there's nothing more important than having a paper backup. I also think there's a vulnerability that this creates, for us, which Trump is not discussing, but which is worth our consideration, which is for the states that are just sending out the mail-in ballot. In other words, you don't request it the way you request a, an absentee ballot. They are relying entirely on their registration systems for mailing it out, which could disenfranchise people who don't have a permanent address, people who've moved over the past four years. Like, you know, Rothkopf moves every six months, right? So, like, who's going to keep up with him, right? Um and the last thing that it does is it makes us dependent on a registration system that we know that the Russians got into in 2016 in Arizona and Illinois. And if you believe DHS in 39 states, other states, maybe up to 50 states. And so suddenly we are much more dependent on having a reliable registration system that another state, not just the Russians, can't hack into. And I don't think we're any place close to that in the four years since the 2016 election. 
Well, no, and, and indeed, we are doing everything in our power, it seems, to make it possible for them to proceed, whether it's firing IGs or un- non-funding anti-hacking uh, uh, measures and defenses that the government can go to. Uh, before we move on to the other thing, and even though this is not really your, your, your main area of focus, Joe, do you have an opinion on Rosa's sanity? I am very worried about this scenario, and I've been worried. Oh, <laughs> wait a minute. Joe, perhaps minute, you'd like Joe. to rephrase. Yeah. I started with Rosa's sanity. Now, are you worried about Rosa's sanity, or are you worried scenario. about scenario? I'm very worried about Rosa, Rosa's scenario and have been since the first time I, I heard her uh, express this. It's been picked up by a, a number of others. I think the, the, and the, only, the only cure for this, since it's not going to come from this administration, is an extremely robust and overwhelming voter turnout that can overcome any of the uh, voter suppression techniques this administration employs or the sabotage efforts of, uh, of Russia. Yeah, well, no, it's certainly good. Now, th- what I'd like to can move I, on. Can I just add one more thing, David, before sure. we move on to another topic? Um, the, the, the single message that I am trying hardest to, to get across to people um, is that any faith that people have in the law as a protection against Trump shenanigans is profoundly misplaced. Um, I think that what Trump excels at, and we, we've seen this over and over and over again, is is creating chaos. You know, so so I'll give you an example of an area where uh, when I when I ring my little little bell of doom. Uh, people tend to say, oh, no, no, but he can't do that because the law says he can't, is is take something like postponing the November election, um, which uh, Jared has told us he, he can't confirm whether or not that will actually happen. Um, so you raise this issue and everybody says, oh, no, no, he can't do that. It's clearly against the law. The president has no power uh, under the law to postpone or cancel the date of the presidential election. This is, of course, true. Um, but... When has that stopped Donald Trump? Um, imagine the impact if Donald Trump did the following. You know, if Donald Trump said, the election is canceled, don't go, don't go vote. And then Donald Trump got even one or two governors to say, you know, and they just, for some reason, you know, the election is canceled because everybody's got COVID. It turns out it really is a very bad disease. Oops. You know, the election is canceled because, oops, like, you know, your incompetent states couldn't get you enough masks and tests. Uh, and all he has to do is persuade one or two governors. Oh, yes, we better postpone our election for that reason. Or even if he doesn't persuade enough people uh, who see the headline saying Trump says election canceled, even if he has no legal power to do that and the polling places are in fact open, uh, to persuade enough people, oh, maybe the election is canceled, I better not go to cause chaos. You know, And, and my point there is that I, I think that, that we, particularly those of us uh, uh, on the liberal side of the political spectrum, tend to have an enormous amount of faith in law, legal institutions, and sort of orderly normal processes to protect us. And when you are up against someone who cares not at all and who operates primarily in the realm of politics and propaganda, it's, it's a very thin veneer of protection. And, and so the, the, the takeaway from that has got to be that everybody needs to be planning and preparing for the types of chaos sowing disruption Trump is likely to, to engage in and not saying, oh, we don't need to worry about that because that would be against the law. 
because uh, he doesn't care at all. Okay, well, that's a good point. Now, there, you know, there's a whole other area of concern that I think we ought to cover because it's 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 covered in few other places uh, in any depth, and that is the fact that under cover of COVID, the President of the United States is conducting some foreign policy, and some of it's um, disturbing uh, uh, or ominous in terms of its implications. And, you know, we're seeing, even in the past week, examples of this with regard to certain international treaties, with regard to China policy, with regard to Israel and Palestinians, with regard to Libya, with regard to uh, things like uh, interference in the election. So let's let's start with one of those, a story that uh, I first saw when uh, David Sanger was writing about it in the New York Times, uh, which had to do with the United States' decision to pull out of a treaty most Americans had never heard of uh, called the Open Skies Treaty. So, D- David, why don't you briefly encapsulate what happened, and then I'd like to get some reactions. I'll start with Joe. Um. Let's um, let's start with what the Treaty on Open Skies was or is, because uh, it still exists. We're not the only uh, signatory. Um, it was an idea that actually began with that great radical liberal Dwight Eisenhower, and uh, who proposed it in Geneva in 1955. Rothkopf was covering it at the time. Uh, and then moved... I'm, so, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I was absent from the planet Earth on 55. <laughs> but go on. And uh, then um, moved on to become a treaty uh, in uh, 1992, negotiated by that other great radical liberal, George H.W. Bush. Uh, so these were this was a Republican idea and a Republican treaty. And the idea was that if we had overflights uh, with us sending our planes over Russia, or at the time the Soviet Union, uh, or actually, I'm sorry, by the time the treaty came into effect, the Soviet Union had broken up and it was Russia, but clearly the Eisenhower concept would have been the Soviets. And if the Europeans did the same thing, we would have confidence that the Russians were not preparing a a conventional military attack by moving troops around and and so forth and so on. It was a confidence-building effort. Um, The administration has complained in recent years uh, that the Russians were interfering with a number of the flights. They were making it hard to go over Kaliningrad, although they did allow uh, one such flight in recent times after the U.S. Um, uh, protested. They were barring some flights over Russian military exercises. In other words, they were playing the kind of games that they played with the INF Treaty and others. But rather than work within the treaty, the administration decided that it would pull out of it, as it did with INF last year and with the Iran nuclear agreement the year before. Um, the treaty, the decision to pull out of it is less worrisome than what it may indicate. Um, the treaty itself has been a little bit overtaken by technology. Uh, you could learn a lot more about uh, what's going on from daily updates in either Google Earth or commercial satellites than you really could from many of these oversight uh, overflights. But at the same time, it does seem to suggest that what President Trump is getting ready to do is end American participation in New Start, not to renew it when it expires just a few weeks after the next inauguration. So this is up for either Trump if he wins or the next president if if they win. President Trump has always said, of course, that the Chinese have to be part of that. And 
we can get into that with Joe. Um, so this was more important politically than I think it was strategically. Joe, you want to react to that? David's right when it comes to the, the big powers who have uh, numerous uh, technical means to kind of collect the data that Open Skies permits, but there are two issues involved here. One is this greatly benefits our allies, some of whom do not have access to that those technical means, and 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 the data is shared, meaning that the photographs taken any one flight, no matter where it is, are shared with all 34 members. So you get instant access to, to this. Uh, members can can be part of flights over others' territory. And of course, this whole thing is designed to increase transparency for the purpose of increasing stability. So it's one of these stabilizing factors that you want in an increasingly unstable world. For all these reasons, the the treaty still served a useful purpose. For all these reasons, our allies are adamantly against the U.S. withdrawing. Over the weekend, there were a statement by 10 of our European allies objecting to the U.S. withdrawal. Um, and there's no question that this serves Putin's interest. That's the only other aspect. I'd actually be interested to see what David thinks about this. Michael Crapon has a great article in, uh, in Forbes today talking about how the, the Soviet general staff always disliked this treaty and some of the Russian general staff dislikes it. And they consider these flights spy flights, some of the same language you hear from the, the Trump camp, and they've always w wanted to be freed of this. Trump has basically now given them a get out of the treaty free card. The U.S. takes the hit for this. You know, we are pulling out of the treaty, and the Russians have a couple of options. They could pull out without saying the treaty is no longer balanced and therefore effective, or they could stay in and just keep up the games that David uh, perfectly uh, describes, allow the flights over innocuous areas and not allow the flights over areas that, that trouble them. It's, it's a win for Putin, and Trump just handed it to them. You know, David, the only thing I'd add to that is that you have to say this for the Russians. They've been consistent. When uh, Eisenhower first proposed this, Khrushchev denounced it as a series of spy flights. And then I, I embedded in our story on this when we broke the story on, on uh, Thursday um, a YouTube video, which I would encourage our listeners to go back to, which was an Oval Office address that Eisenhower gave in 1960 um, on the need for the treaty. And it's really interesting because it, as you watch it in current context, whether you think the treaty was a good idea or a bad idea or the whole idea was good or bad, to watch an American president sitting in the Oval Office, explaining in complete sentences his logic for a new treaty with a longtime adversary is itself a little bit mind-blowing when you view it in the, current, in the current moment. No question. Now, let me, let me move on to another area. And of course, Ed and Rosen, as we go around, you can always comment on the, the ones that I've talked about most recently. But I have to say, if there was a story this week with regard to foreign policy that I was watching most closely and, and I found most disturbing. Uh, it, it was the Chinese government's moves in Hong Kong to um, uh, impose, uh, you know, uh, a, a new, uh, it's not a new interpretation, but to impose themselves um, uh, in an anti-democratic way against Hong Kong and in a way that is, is, is 
contrary to the to the basic law that was entered into when Hong Kong um, uh, rejoined China and the whole one country, two systems idea was um, put forth. Uh, and it suggests the Chinese moving under cover of COVID to tighten their grip on Hong Kong. And the United States at the same time um, was fairly quiet on this, although there does seem to be a move within the U.S. to ratchet up tensions with the Chinese elsewhere that was happening simultaneously. Um, and, you know, the, in, in one of the strangest twists of sort of foreign policy that I, that I think I've seen, and there have been a lot of strange ones, a complete nincompoop, Peter Navarro, um, actually got one thing right in his entire life, which was COVID was bad. And because he said that, he somehow gained credibility as a spokesperson for the administration. They've put him out there more often. And he is one of the worst, most irrational China hawks there is. And so that may threaten, you know, any and the, the trade deal and so forth. So, Ed, how do you see the most important relationship in the world right now and evolving over the next couple of months? Well, Xi, Xi Jinping's move on Hong Kong was, um, I think, you know, because COVID has happened, um, everybody's using it as a cloak. Uh, it's, a, it's one sign of, um, of what people think they can get away with while there's a global pandemic. Um, so that's one aspect of it. Uh, uh, a more important one, I think, is the brittleness it shows in Xi Jinping's uh, grip on power in China. Uh, clearly, the uh, popular anger over how he treated the whistleblowers in Wuhan um, and the bloggers and those who were, uh, and the doctor, of course, who died, um, uh, when they tried to alert China and the world to this virus in December and January, that, that's shaken his legitimacy. And he is behaving as anybody who's insecure about their power, or not anybody, but most throughout history have done, which is to try and grab even more of it. So it's a very draconian move. Um, it's not Hong Kong that's passing um, this law, which incorporates Chinese uh, state security laws into Hong Kong. It's China that is imposing it on Hong Kong. He is, Xi is poking the Hong Kong people with a stick um, at a time when, when feelings are very raw um, and uh, when the Hong Kong people have shown that they're not easily cowed, that they've been extraordinarily bold in the last year in standing up and protesting against Chinese power. So what, what concerns me about that over and above what I've just said is in the context of the United States and China, um, with Trump saying it's China to blame for the coronavirus, not me, that being essentially his election strategy, and Beijing Biden is the lackey of China. Uh, so uh, a reckless um, and scapegoating American president, uh, at the same time as you've got a very brittle autocrat with you know these freedom of navigation operations being stepped up 
um, in, in the South China Sea, and Pompeo and others, Navarro, very, very conspicuously congratulating Tsai Ing-wen, the, the president of Taiwan, on her inauguration last week, that we've got very, very high temperature here. And two very, um, very brittle characters, one of whom might lose power in November, God help us if he doesn't, um, another of whom made himself president for life, essentially, but is now you know, wondering what he can do to keep it. And what, what do Chinese leaders do to keep it? They focus externally on, um, on external threats. They, they ramp up the xenophobia. It, it, the, the possibility here for this to get very nasty is very worrying. Yeah, no, clearly it is. I, one slight mini uh, correction, I don't know, correction, but adjustment, which is Trump won't lose power till January. And the period between November and January could be quite a, quite a, a troubling period if he has lost the election or we're in controversy over the election. But it allows us to then return to Cassandra here. And, you know, just put it into some context, there was a good story by our friend Anna Fifield a couple of days ago in the Washington Post, um, in which, you know, she noted that Peter Navarro said that the Chinese sent hundreds of thousands of people infected with the virus on planes to seed it around the world. Um, and then um, uh, also on Sunday, uh, our uh, very next to invisible national security advisor said the cover-up they did of the virus is going to go down in history along with Chernobyl. Um, so the, the talk is quite inflammatory, and you are, of course, Cassandra. Um, do, you, do you think that the United States and China um, or, you know, could come to blows over something like Hong Kong? Or more likely, since the Taiwanese said, we will accept refugees from Hong Kong, we, you know, we have provisions in our uh, in our law to do that if the Chinese behave this way, uh, that we get into a standoff over uh, Taiwan? Uh, I, Even though I'm Cassandra, I'm still inclined to think that coming to blows directly with China over this or anything is, is quite unlikely, um, if only because the Chinese are not nearly as crazy as Donald Trump. And actually, I, I don't think Donald Trump is crazy enough to want that. I, I think we've seen we've seen the same pattern over and over of uh, uh, aggression, over-the-top rhetoric, um, but then when push comes to shove, he, he either backs down or he simply loses interest and he goes on to something else. So I, I doubt it in terms of actual uh, open conflict. In terms of possible ongoing standoff, you know, yeah, that's possible. Um, I I mean, it's it's so ridiculous. The the we seem perfectly happy to accept China doing whatever they want in Hong Kong, if only they would fess up to the COVID pandemic being completely their fault. Um, we don't really care if they you know crush all the Hong Kong pro democracy demonstrators with tanks. Um, so it does seem pretty clear that the, the battle for Trump is is you know it's symbolic, not real as usual. Um, I actually wanted to highlight a slightly different but related issue, which is that China and Hong Kong is far from the only context in which we are seeing the pandemic being used as cover for 
all kinds of repression that governments have been sort of eagerly waiting to unveil or just looking for a good excuse. I mean, I think that that this is something that happens in general. Um, you know, it happened after 9-11. Uh, after 9-11, ironically and sadly, it was the U.S. that in many ways led the way in repressive and uh, uh, actions that didn't respect human rights and civil liberties, which were then emulated by regimes around the globe that said, well, the U.S. says that you can de detain people indefinitely as enemy combatants, and the U.S. says that it's okay to torture people and so on. So, therefore, we're just doing what the U.S. is telling us to do. You know, here... Are, we are we are not leading the way in repressiveness because luckily we're just too disorganized. Um, but we certainly, whether it's Latin America uh, or whether whether it's in places in Central Asia or India, as well as in Hong Kong, we are seeing governments both take pass pass legislation or take actions that are repressive in the name of reducing the spread of the pandemic or simply using the chaos caused by the spread of the pandemic and the complete distraction of global elites who are fixated on the pandemic to under undercover do things that they know that they probably wouldn't be able to get away with if everybody was paying a little bit more attention. And I do think that the, the pattern in this kind of crisis is that it is harder to roll back restrictive legislation and practices than it is to start them. So I think that even though this, you know, this pandemic will end at some point, uh, whether that is in one year or in three or four or five, I don't know, but it will. But I suspect that the long-term political impact around the globe of the actions being taken by many, many governments is going to take decades to unwind if it's even possible. I think that's a that's a good point. Let me pick up one other action that seems to be happening under cover of COVID that also seems to reveal a strange schizophrenia within the Trump administration, where you have the president on one side and you have uh, senior officials seemingly on another side. And I'll turn to you, uh, David, quickly. And this, by the way, we have about 10 minutes, so everybody should keep their remarks fairly um, uh, short, but but this has to do with with Libya, where um, the United States today made a the De Department of Defense made a rather strong accusation that the Russians were ferrying planes in there, that they were taking Russian planes, flying them to Syria, painting them over so that they didn't look like Russian planes anymore, and flying them on to Libya to support Haftar. Um, uh, and his side in the struggle within that country. Um, you know, Trump has been sort of okay with him. Pompeo and the State Department, now the Defense Department, seem like they're not. Um, but all this, again, is the kind of escalation that seems to be happening under cover of COVID. What are your thoughts, David? Um, before I get to Libya, let me just throw in one on the China uh, part here. Um, part of what I think you've seen happen in the China debate inside the administration is that Mike Pompeo, for all of his other problems, whether it's inspector generals looking at dog walking or uh, declaring an emergency related to Saudi Arabia that enabled the administration to uh, provide arms again, he won the China debate inside the administration. A year ago, on these uh, podcasts, we were talking about 
the debate between Steve Mnuchin on one side and Pompeo on the other about how you deal with China. The way I read the events of recent times is that Pompeo won and Xi Jinping helped him and helped him for all the reasons that Ed's laid out, that while the administration has certainly egged them on with all of the Wuhan virus stuff and so forth, in the end, the Chinese had agency here, right? And they chose this moment to do what they're doing in uh, Hong Kong. They chose this moment to do what they're doing in the South China Sea. They've chosen this moment to do what they're doing along the Indian border. And um, I think that the combination of Xi's action and Trump needing to have uh, an adversary who I agree he does not want to actually go into open conflict with um, has helped lead to, to all of this. Um, on Libya, um, I don't doubt for a moment that the Defense Department report is right. Um, I do doubt that you'll ever hear the President of the United States get out and give a talk about it, because whenever he's asked about Russia, he has one answer, which is, why can't we all get along? At which point Pompeo issues new sanctions or, you know, the Defense Department uh, reveals new steps like this. And I think the, the astounding disconnect in this administration is between what the Russians are doing and what the, what the president won't say about it. Uh, it's, it's only astounding if you haven't been reading the newspaper for the past three and a half years. If you have been reading the newspaper, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Joe, what do, you, what do you think about this escalation in the Middle East relative to other escalations in the Middle East? You know, this picks up on Rosa's point that there are a number of world crises out there sort of waiting to happen. And, and, and the, you know, there, there may be a good dozen of them, and I would say maybe half a dozen of them are, are in the Middle East, whether it's Libya, where we just talked about, whether it's in Syria, where despite Assad's military victories, he's now got a collapsed country and dissension is starting to brew again, even among his his um, his the coalition that's kept, that's kept him in power. You have Bibi Netanyahu doing what Rosa just said, using the cover of the pandemic to enact very far-reaching strategies, in this case, annexation of part of the West Bank. I mean, when, that, that is a fuse you do not want to light, but he is, he is lighting it. Um, I was just on a call with the Iranian ambassador to the UN uh, this morning, talking about 100 people or so. I, I think I'm not supposed to say what he said, but in general, it was, it, you know, it's, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Iran's in great shape. And whenever you hear a leader say things like that, you know, you know, things, things are troubled and things, you remember the demonstrations that were occurring in Iran earlier? Well, there's a potential with the collapsed economy, the, the inept response to the COVID crisis, this could come out. And of course, meanwhile, this is all taking place in, with an Iraq that is is uh, unstable, so very large demonstrations before COVID, the situation's just gotten worse. And in Afghanistan, where we've just seen a, a, a horrid escalation in violence, a, you know, a bombing of a, of, of a hospital where th that killed uh, a, several score women in that hospital. So no, th this the, the pot is still bubbling. You know, it's been pushed off our newspaper pages. No offense, David, I know you're trying our best, but you only get one or two stories at most 
about what's going on in the rest of the world short of, of, of COVID. Those crises are still out there. The pandemic, the economic collapse is making them worse. There are catastrophes waiting to happen, and we'll see some certainly erupt before the end of this year. Well, you know, I see that changing a little bit in the past week or two, not just in the Times, but even, dare I say it, in the FT and elsewhere, where you've begun to see a, uh, a good run of stories on other issues. Um, think of the big piece in the Times yesterday about why it is that we've seen so few African-Americans and other minorities at the top of the military. Great, great piece by Helene Cooper, another yeah. of our friends, yeah. who did a, a, a really great job. But, Ed, I was just going to pick up with you and say, you know, that it does seem like the boil is getting turned up a little bit here around the world in the run-up to Trump's departure. And it brings up another theme that we've talked about here periodically, which is, you know, there are a lot of people in the world who benefit from Trump's presence one way or another as an enabler, as an enemy. And he may not be around for much longer. So if you're going to take advantage of it, the clock's ticking. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think Netanyahu um, being sort of prime candidate there. Um, uh, this this uh, idea that uh, during the Cold War and then afterwards with American unipolarity, there have been these frozen conflicts um, that, because of America's um, security umbrella, have basically not really moved. They've not improved. They've stayed in place, but they've, they've not really flared up. And you can think you can sort of count them. There are lots of them, um, but the Kashmir one is, is one very obvious one. To, to, uh, Cyprus and, and Turkish Greek conflict um, is another. There are plenty. There are plenty there that are brewing um, because America uh, um, has signaled its lack of interest in um, in containing them, and because America is withdrawing to America first. And they were brewing and beginning to bubble and or un, or, or thaw, defreeze before COVID. And I think what COVID does is it gives much more cover. Um, for people to do things um, that they weren't able to do before, um, both domestically, as, as Rosa was talking about, and but also in terms of international gains. Um, so the conflict, well, the, the saber-rattling you're hearing on the China-India border is what worries me the most. I mean, people focus often on India-Pakistan, but uh, really Pakistan is a proxy for China. Um, a, a nuclear proxy for China, as Joe, Joe will attest. That, that, that situation worries me a great deal because you've also got a strong man in India um, who likes to show his strength and who, who cannot be seen to back down. Um, so if China really is, as, uh, as, as uh, David was saying, if China really is testing what it can get away with in different spheres overseas, and the Himalayas and the South China Sea and Hong Kong, um, then we're going to see we're going to see stuff that we don't want to see. Um, and I think uh, you know I think we are in kind of interwar interregnum where there is no one power holding the ring, and that's when dangerous stuff happens. Last word, Rosa. We've got a minute. Hey, my or two. last word is really a question. We we haven't yet. Uh, spend any time on this podcast um, asking Ed to translate Britishisms into, into American for us. And he promised that he was going to explain to our listeners 
what a silly mid-on is. And we know that this is either about cricket or about fashion, but we're really not sure which. And Ed, we're, we're hoping you can enlighten us. Is it about Dominic Cummings? Is or it, it might be about Dominic Cummings, a silly yeah. mid-on. Dominic Cummings would be um, a cretinous mid-on, which is a <laughs> completely different field position in cricket. Silly mid-on is somebody that's <laughs> close enough to the batter, the batsman, um, to really put themselves in danger. And so I guess the word silly was added in. Nowadays, they wear helmets, though. So basically, all of us are now the silly mid-ons to the Trump presidency. We are. There are some other interesting fielding positions you could designate, like uh, short leg, silly, uh-huh. silly mid-off. Uh, Ooh, I forgot about the silly mid-off. A slip. <laughs> but <laughs> I suspect DSR's big listenership would dwindle to nothingness. Um, a sort of existential fate would await it if I talked about fielding positions in cricket for much longer. Nice that it was. <laughs> hey, Ed, can you tell us who actually makes up words like this? And is this something that happens to once great powers that basically lose their relevance in the world and then can spend time on issues like this? Just asking for a friend. We should be so lucky, David. <laughs> Yeah, we, we, we should be so lucky. Uh, Victorian era. So I'm not, I'm not sure that's so that fits. Yeah. It's true. It was the height of British power that brought, a, brought us the silly mid on. Maybe um, that caused the decline. Yeah. Yeah. I think we diagnosed something here that is in none of the texts that I read when I was in college. Yeah, right. And there's a connection between the silly Midon and the Kardashians, but we can get into that <laughs> in our next book on the rise and fall of great powers. In any event, folks, uh, I think we've talked about something, uh, several things that are really important here in the context of this moment, the fog of COVID under the cover of COVID. A lot of things are happening right now that we ought to be paying attention to that we might not be paying attention to or giving enough attention to. Uh, and if you take COVID and the upcoming election and all of these things, you certainly have a very volatile cocktail to look forward to over the course of the next several months. Obviously, we will be here. We will be talking about them. Um, and uh, this week, uh, we have not one, not two, not three, but four episodes of uh Deep State Radio, uh, because we'll do one on Thursday that's focused on COVID again, as we often are with several guests who are experts in COVID. But we're going to start in the middle of the week a series of discussions with other leaders, and we'll start with one with uh, Bill Burns, former Deputy um, Secretary of State, and Tony Blinken, also former Deputy Secretary of State, um, about what the agenda should be for the next president on foreign policy. And we will then move to discussing what the agenda should be on issues like uh, human rights and on uh, democracy and then on to economic issues and so forth. And hopefully this will continue throughout the summer so we can talk a little bit constructively on how we get from where we are to where we ought to be. We couldn't do any of this without your support. If you want to support us more, go to thedsrnetwork.com. And we couldn't do any of it without these great people who are the core of what we do. So let me conclude by thanking you, Rosa, Ed, David, and Joe, and inviting you uh, all who are listening back soon here at Deep State Radio. Stay healthy. Bye-bye.